Many people say that the information from human genetics is overwhelmingly showing that we did not originate from Adam and Eve. Could we all just come from two people today on Creation Magazine Live? Get ready for faith-encouraging information starting right now. And for even more, visit creation.com. Welcome to Creation Magazine Live. I'm Richard Fangrad. And I'm Calvin Smith. Today on Creation Magazine Live, we're talking about, did we all come from two people? What's the evidence for coming from Adam and Eve? Right. Now, what we're going to do is something a little bit different here. Okay. Um, I'd like to read a, a feedback article from a skeptic, uh, somebody that wrote into our site talking about the subject today, and he makes a couple of points. And what we're going to do is we're going to put the text up on the screen so everybody can follow along. It, it's, it's fairly long, but just follow along because it's going to uh, introduce the, uh, the questions we're going to answer uh, in a sense. See, according to creationists, all humans alive today are descended from eight people who got off a really big boat. Anyone who understands junior high genetics will know that eight people have between them a maximum possible of 16 different alleles for each genetic locus. In reality, the eight people on the big boat would have had even fewer since some of them were descended from others and thus shared alleles. But for the sake of the argument, we will give the creationists every possible benefit of the doubt and assume that they were all heterozygous and shared no alleles at all in common. That means if the creationists are correct, that most mutations are deleterious, and that no new genetic information can appear through mutation, there cannot be any ge human genetic locus anywhere today with more than 16 alleles, since that's the maximum that have, could have gotten off the big boat. But wait, today we find human genetic loci, uh, such as hemoglobin or the HLA complex, that have well over 400 different alleles. Indeed, some have over 700 different alleles. Hmm, since there could have only been 16 possible on the big boat, and since there are over 400 now, and since 400 is more than 16, that means that somehow the genetic information increased from the time they got off the big boat until now. That raises a few questions. You can tell these kind of sarcastic here. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if genetic mutations always produce a loss in information like the creationists keep telling us, then how did we go from 16 alleles to over 400 alleles? Perhaps in creationist mathematics, 400 is not larger than 16. Uh, no. You, you, can, you can tell that he's obviously not expecting an intelligent response. <laughs> if these new alleles did not appear through mutations, then how did they get there? But wait, there's more. Not only according to creationists must these new alleles have appeared after the big boat, but according to their uh, theory, all of these mutations must have appeared in the space of just 4,000 years, the period of time since the big flood. That gives us a rate of beneficial mutations which add new genetic information of one every 10 years or roughly two every generation, a much higher rate of beneficial mutation that has ever been recorded anywhere in nature. Nowhere today do we see such a rate anywhere near so high so not only would I like to know what produced this extraordinarily high rate of non-deleterious mutations, but what stopped it? Indeed, what stopped it conveniently right before the very time when we first developed the technology means, technological means to study it? But wait, we're still not done yet. Since less than 1% of observed mutations are beneficial, the vast majority of mutations are indeed deleterious or neutral and have no effect. That means for every beneficial mutation which added a new allele, there should have been roughly 99 others which did not. So to give us roughly 400 beneficial mutations, that would require somewhere around 40,000 total mutations, a rate of approximately 100 mutations in every locus every year. 
or 2,000 mutations per locus for each generation. Do you know what we call people who experience mutation rates that high? We call them cancer victims. But wait, we're still not finished. In order for any of these mutations to be passed on to the next generation to produce new alleles, they must occur in the germ cells, sperm or egg. And since any such high rate of mutation in a somatic cell, non-sperm or egg, would have quickly produced a fatal case of cancer, if the creationists are right, this mutation rate could only have occurred in the germ cells and cannot have occurred in any of the somatic cells. In one of our if one of our residential our resident creations can produce uh, propose a mechanism for me which produces a hugely high rate of mutation in the germ cells while excluding it from any other cells, a Nobel Prize in medicine surely awaits. Such information would be critically valuable to cancer researchers, but alas, no such mechanism exists. The rate of mutations which necessarily uh, made necessary by creationist arguments would certainly have killed all of Noah's children before. They even had time to have any kids of their own. In order to produce 400 beneficial alleles in just 4,000 years, humanity would have been beset with cancers at a rate that would have wiped them all out millennia ago. Explain, please. Wow. Yeah. Now, this guy makes quite a number of uh, interesting assertions here. Yes. But the, the, the problem is actually worse than he's, he's stating because not that we didn't come from eight people, we came from two. Right. So that makes the problems even worse. Exactly. Now, Dr. Robert Carter is a biologist. He works uh, at CMI at our U.S. office, and he's done extensive study on genetics um, uh, from a biblical point of view. And, right. and so um, we did an interview with him, and here's what he had to say when asked, does genetics disprove the Bible? There are a lot of people who think that genetics has disproven the Bible, but at flat out wrong. Um, it, it's, just, it's just totally fallacious. If you, um, if you look at modern genetics, uh, the Bible makes some predictions about history. Modern genetics claims to have tools for testing theories of history. You cannot disprove the Bible. If the Bible was completely wrong, it could be, it could be said, no, the Bible can't be right. But there are, there are a lot of things in human genetics that actually support the biblical account. That isn't supposed to be true. Now, if I was going to invent some random mythology of how, how people came about on the earth, I think my chances of actually getting it anywhere close to the actual real world data is about zero. And yet we've got, you know, all people going back to one man and one woman in the recent past. We've got very little diversity amongst people worldwide. We've got sections of the genome. Every, every generation, the chromosomes cross over and they get resorted and, and, a baby is born actually with our, with our grandparents' chromosomes all scrambled up. Well, there are parts of the human genome that have never been scrambled in all of human history. Um, there, there's abundant evidence that, that humankind is young, uh, that the genome is young. And in fact, based on the known mutation rate, uh, if we were millions of years old, we should be extinct already. So there's tons of factors that come in there to, to say, no, that, that the Bible has not been disproven with genetics, it's actually supported by genetics. Even though we've got a lot of questions that we still haven't answered, I'm really happy with the ones we have answered because many of them support the biblical model directly. Of course, we take the Bible as plainly written. We, we presuppose right. the scripture has the, the ultimate authority, so we need to figure out, well, what does the Bible actually say about do we come from right. two people? Yeah, does it actually say we come from two people? Well, here's some verses to consider. Let's start with uh, Corinthians 15:45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. Right, it was the first man. First man. Consider Genesis 3.20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. That's Genesis 3.20. How about Acts 17.26? From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. Here's another one. 1 Corinthians 11.8. 
For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Here's one more, 1 Timothy 2.13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Well, seems to be quite a, an impressive array of proof texts there. It seems pretty clear to me, yeah, actually. Yeah. Now, there have been some Christians, of course, that have said, well, wait a sec, there must have been other people around at the time of Adam and Eve, because, okay. you know, then where did Cain get his wife? And, and of course, well, yes. we've done yes. whole programs on that. So uh, we, we've dealt with this. If you get our Answers book, Answers the Top 60 Questions about the Creation Evolution Debate, yeah. you can get that from our website. There's articles online. Um, we've done a Genesis Unleashed episode, uh, episode two. You can look that up on our website if you prefer video. And it explains why, uh, where King got his wife and why we don't need to believe in that. So anyway, we're, we're going to make you look that up. We're not going to explain it right now, okay? We've done that before. Yeah, we'll move on. Now, we've, we've talked about mutations before as well, on other programs as well, and what they can do and what they can't and so on. This person seems to be confusing, uh, have a little confusion in this area, the concept of new alleles with beneficial mutations and new information. Right. Mutations can corrupt information and they can cause new genes and new traits that do interesting new things as they corrupt the information. Right. Let, let's go through his objections here, right? Yeah. He, he's saying, well, look, you've got eight people on this big boat, which is even tougher if we come from two people. So he's saying there's only 16 maximum alleles per trait that that should be it. There's not enough time to produce all the new variation. That's one of his objections, right? Um, the mutations would have to be to the germ cells, not just you know uh, other cells. Right. And and uh, he says new information means beneficial mutation rates that are too large. If if beneficial mutations, if there's only you know one percent of them are beneficial, one percent, then four hundred beneficial mutations would mean forty thousand you know deleterious or you know neutral ones, and of course that would cause cancer and all that stuff. That, those are his actual uh, right. things, yeah. criteria. Um, it, however, they, they shouldn't be confused, all of, all of this, this little confused there, it shouldn't be confused with new information right. in the sense that, that we are arguing for. And here's some examples. Sickle cell anemia, for mm -hmm. example. Sickle cell anemia is caused by a point mutation in hemoglobin causing a certain amino acid to be replaced with another which distorts the red blood cells into a sickle shape. They're no longer nice and round and decreases their elasticity. The loss of red blood cell elasticity is the cause of the sickle cell disease. Normal red blood cells are quite elastic, which allows the cells to deform to uh, pass through capillaries, the, the small blood vessels. In sickle cell disease, the blood cells fail to return to normal shape when oxygen tension is restored. As a consequence, these rigid blood cells are unable to deform as they pass through narrow capillaries, leading to vessel blockage. Right. Now, it would be a huge stretch to say that uh, the allele for, allele for sickle cell uh, is new information, right, in yeah. the sense that an yeah. evolutionist needs, because what we're talking about is a corruption of information that was already there, yes. which is a downward uh, trend, and of course, uh, that, that's not what you need in evolution. You need new stuff that never existed before. Right. Now, a more neutral example of a new allele, I guess we could say, is something like blue eyes, right? Uh, variation in the uh, color of the eyes from brown to green can all be explained by the amount of melanin we have in our iris. So scientists have postulated in the beginning we were all brown-eyed people. But a genetic mutation affecting the OCA2 gene in our chromosomes uh, resulted in a damaged switch, which turned off the ability to produce brown eyes. So here we've got another example of, well, you've got this switch that's broken, and now you've got a new allele, a new color, but that's just a lack of color that we had producing this, this new color. 
Well, that's not new information. You've got a broken switch. That, yeah, that doesn't help. It's a help. corruption of something that, that was already there. Exactly. Right. Now, as far as variation with, within humans is concerned, uh, could we all come from two people understanding random mutations and so on? But that's not the only mechanism to produce variation in humans. Right. Something else that can do that. Well, there could be designed Variation, right? right? Who's to say yeah. that God didn't create, uh, you know, the different genomes with a massive amount of information, and that there's it has an ability within itself to modify itself, and there's support for that, right? I mean, a good example uh, of this idea of design variation caused by mutations uh, is our immune system. I mean, higher organisms have, uh, you know, to fight off bugs and parasites and things like that. It has an immune system, yeah. and so. Um, uh, this defense system, one of, one of the uh, particular types of immune cells, the B cells, uh, they produce these defense proteins known as immunoglobulins. That's a hard one to wrap my tongue around, but anyway. And, and these, they're, they're kind of sticky. They, they, they like adhere to intruders, you know, and any kind of thing that gets into us that's not supposed to be there. They basically um, attach themselves to intruders. They're kind of sticky. And then that way, uh, the other defense systems can recognize them as you know, the uh, things to intruders. get rid of. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. like if you see, you know, the, the, the work crew out there and they're tagging trees. Okay, we want to take this one down. Okay, we want to yeah. take that one down because it's a little unsafe. Well, that's what they do. They, they tag these things and then, the, you know, the immune system comes in and there's this destruction cascade activated, right? Now, if you were going to have a tag available for every possible intruder, and, and there's millions of those different things, how could the body have all that information? Yeah, well, yeah. well, it doesn't. These, these immunoglobulin genes are actually assembled from several pre-existing DNA sequences. And so they're kind of like randomly generated to see if they can match the different uh, you know, problems that are coming into the system. And they just randomly produce all these variations and then, oh, that one matches. And then now it, now it can uh, be identified and the immune system uh, works in that way. Okay. So this is a mechanism to rapidly induce mutations. So, so actually, these B cells, they don't w wait for mutations to randomly happen inside our body. They, they're actually generated um, out of necessity by programmed machinery. They're programmed that way. Exactly. Yeah. Already in, a, in, our, yeah. uh, in our system. So anyway, so a, a, you know, a system that's designed to shuffle existing information and create varieties on purpose, that wouldn't exactly be what we'd call a random mutation in the sense of, well, it's a random spelling mistake. Right. It's machinery yeah. activated so that all these things can, uh, can pop out. And so obviously that, that looks like design. <laughs> yeah, and are there, are there other things that could do that as well? Let's consider what we've learned so far in, uh, as far as genetics, uh, genetics are concerned. The number of genes identified in the Human Genome Project is about 35,000, far less than the known number of human proteins, which is more than 100,000. In other words, there are a whole bunch more proteins than there are genes to code for them. Right. Now, cells are able to edit the information copied from a gene onto the DNA to produce different, ver different varieties of proteins. This is called splicing, which is done by a very complicated protein complex called a spliceosome. Kind of a cool name. Yeah. Uh, though no one knows yet how it does its editing to produce the desired proteins. One particular gene has been found to produce over 500 different proteins in this way. <laughs> this discovery means that the, a certain gene inserted into the DNA of an organism might not produce only the protein that the scientist desires, if you're doing gene splicing and so on, or, or, or any of it for that matter, since the, the, the cell environment 
of the host DNA determines the editing, different unanticipated proteins could be produced from the donated gene. Right, so, so you've got a bit of information that can produce up to 500 variants dependent upon other things uh, that are... Other factors. That are, are there, um, influencing it, we yeah. could say. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Now, it, was, it was once thought that uh, uh, only the sequence of the amino acids is what determines uh, the, the, the gene on the DNA, and that's, but, but it's, it's actually determined by folding, right. the way it's folded in three-dimensional space. And you can see a video here of that. However, we know that protein folding needs other proteins called chaperones to arrive at the correct shape. The host cell may have different chaperones, and that could cause a different folding to occur, producing a different protein with different characteristics to those desired. Right. It's really interesting. It's fantastic, these spliceosome concept where, you know, you got a string of DNA letters and you take a bit from here and then you take a bit from here and you take a bit from here and then you stick it together and you've got information for something that wasn't just normally written out. It'd be like having a, it'd be like having a code book, right? You have a, a, a novel or something like that and someone says, well, go to page 52 and take line 12 and you take that and then you go over to page 89 and you put it together and all of a sudden you've got a message. That's, that's the kind yeah, of sophistication yeah, yeah. that we're seeing inside Incredible. living things. So this uh, skeptic, his arguments are kind of falling down here uh, the more we know about things. Now, <laughs> another thing that this uh, fellow said, that w there wasn't enough time to account for the amount of variation in our germ cells, right? To l allow for the type of variation we see with just two people. Um, but the fact is, mutations are happening at a much faster rate than, than most people yes. understand. Yeah. And we've done shows on that and shown how devastating that is. And the fact is we're not evolving, we're devolving yes. uh, very yeah. quickly. <laughs> so uh, we, we got back to Dr. Robert Carter and uh, he, he's explained this in our interview with him. Uh, a lot of people think that mutations are evidence of evolution. But actually mutations are evidence of decay over time, which fits beautifully into the picture of God cursing the world after Adam rebelled and our need for a savior. We have no hope in genetics. We have no hope in technology. We have no hope in gene therapy. We're doomed. Um, the mutation rate right now, uh, even conservatively, is at least 60 new mutations for every child that's born. Uh, back, in the, um, back in the 1950s, Haldane estimated that if, if, um, if there was one mutation for every 10 children, that humanity wouldn't be able to keep up. Because that would mean that 10% of the population would have to be destroyed to get rid of those mutations over time. So natural selection would have to get rid of 10% of the whole population. He said, no, we can't survive that. Well, he was several orders of magnitude off because it's not one out of 10, it's actually 100 per. That's a thousand times higher than he said is our maximum survivable rate. Um, so genetics, mutations are destroying us. The only reason we're here is because we haven't been here very long. Okay, so one of the problems that this fellow who wrote into us was having was he was confusing uh, new alleles with new information. Right. And a number of other problems as well. Yeah. Now, if we take the Bible as plainly written, we can understand that we all come from two people. And as a matter of fact, Dr. Rob Carter has produced a DVD called Mitochondrial yes. Eve and the Three Daughters of Noah. And I would encourage you to go to creation.com and check that out. Um, maybe order the DVD, maybe get a digital download. And so you can really understand he's done a lot of work in this area. And I thought, well, instead of just commenting on a particular piece of news, 
I'd give you uh, some information on maybe how to handle some news items. Maybe you're looking through the news and you see something about the creation evolution debate and you go, well, how do I understand that? And uh, I thought I'd just chat about a, a situation I used one time when I was teaching at a school. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, what well, was an interesting situation? We were asked by uh, a Christian group to come in and teach at a public school. Yes. But only in the morning. Um, it wasn't for the, the, for the whole audience. So it was like a Christian group within a school. And they wanted me to come in and do five sessions. So I had a half an hour right before school started. And uh, there was probably about 20, 30, 30 young people okay. there. And so what I did is I, I had Monday to Friday. So what I did is I started with a, a, what we call a relevance talk, right? What's the relevance of the creation? Yeah, internally that's the way we refer to it. Yeah. Why it's important. So that's yeah. what I did on day one on Monday. Then Tuesday, I did a, a talk on biology, you know, natural selection, genetic mutation, that kind of thing. Day three, I did a talk on the flood, geology, why we can account for the rock layers, we don't need millions of years, etc. Day four, I think I did dinosaurs, that's a big topic, right? Sure, yeah. And yeah. on a day five, what I actually did is I took a news article that I'd found uh, online, and it was from an evolutionist saying, all this evidence for, for evolution and, and, you know, why the creationists are silly and stuff. And I photocopied it, and I stapled it together. And I walked into day five and I handed them out and I said, okay, there's what we're doing today. So you got copies for everybody. Right. Yep. And, and I said, here's a, a, red magic, or a red highlighter and a green highlighter. And what I want you to do is I want you to read this. As that's what we're going to do today. Read it and I want you to highlight in green every fact you see. And okay. then in red, highlight every interpretation of facts that you see. And now, of course, all through the week, I'd been talking about, well, look, creationists and evolutionists, we believe in the same, we, same. we're observing the same facts. Absolutely. We yeah, interpret yeah. them different ways, yep. and, and you guys are getting taught So you were, you were teaching the kid over four days, you were teaching the students this. That's right. And then Friday was the test. Yes, so in exactly. <laughs> and, and so I hand them out, and, and you could see the looks on their face, like, oh, you know. And they started going through, and it was very interesting. Right away. Well, this person doesn't know the difference between natural selection and evolution. I was one of the, and I was like, "You're exactly right." See, that was from day two when I did the biology okay, talk, right? Yeah. And and uh, you know all sorts of different comments. And so when they were done, you know, their, their pages looked like a like a bloody mess. You know, it was just red everywhere. So there's far more red, far more interpretation than there was facts. Exactly. There yeah. were little little dots of green interspaced throughout this this article. And a massive amount of interpretations. And so what was really good, I thought it was just a great um, exercise for them to do. Well, it is. That's, that, that, yeah. that's great. And we encourage people to do that. You, you can, you, if you still get the newspaper or whatever, you probably need to go online to get a, get a, get a news article that has to do with evolution. Something, right. anything. And, and do the same exercise yourself and pick out, and, and you can learn to do it without the markers after a while. <laughs> that, that'd be nice. Pick out what scientists are actually observing and then all the spin that's placed around it right. and learn to separate those two things out when a scientist says you know today in my lab i observed this and this or i looked in a microscope or i saw this on this particular meter that or whatever proves right th then he's, he's he makes a segue from one yeah. from fact from the observations into his idea about how that thing got there or what it did in the past when he didn't observe it so it's an interpretation right. yeah so just a great exercise so, yeah uh, something you might want to think about do with your kids perhaps that's a great thing to do with young people so they get immunized against this indoctrination 
Both the Creation Magazine live TV show and this podcast are produced by Creation Ministries International, a global think tank organization dedicated to disseminating the huge amount of scientific evidence for the accuracy of the biblical account of the origin of our universe. If you'd like to donate to keep this information coming, go to creation.com slash donate. And thanks for listening. 